Well, I do want to welcome everybody at all of our campuses. Welcome to the party. And this is a season which every year, the, the holiday season, comes with information overload in our services. We're trying to keep everybody informed so we're all on the same pages. We have so many different services being offered at all of our campuses. And in addition to that, we have some unique things taking place, one of them being the week after Christmas. You know, the Sunday or Saturday weekend services straddle the new year. That weekend, we are not having services on site. All services will be moved online. And we are having what we are calling a Sabbath weekend, where we are giving our staff and all the hundreds of volunteers who make our ministry happen week in and week out, just a week of rest and say, hey, enjoy your time with your family and your friends. And would you just join us online as we celebrate and invite in the new year? So that is something that you will want to Keep on your radar. And I gotta tell you, this week we, we filmed uh, some things for New Year's, and I have been battling a cold all week. Anyone else, you've just kind of been dealing with this nonsense. It's not COVID, it's not the flu, but it's also not going away. Something is in my head. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I take extreme measures when it comes to illness, so I just start taking medicine to get it out of me. And so I woke up Wednesday to do a filming for our New Year service, and I can't recall a thing I said. All I know is I used a Michelangelo picture as an illustration. And I get done doing my whole deal, and everyone comes up to me afterwards, and they're like, hey, who did the painting? And I said, well, Michelangelo. And they said, okay, you said Leonardo da Vinci. And apparently that Robitussin had me swaying. And... Uh, <laughs> It's still a little bit in my system, so if I'm a little off today, just know there's some medicine in the body. I'm gonna do my best to pastor well. Uh, but we are excited about all that God is doing at Northview, and we're gonna kick off the New Year's with so many great things, 21 days of prayer and fasting, a lot of information coming your way about that. And then during those 21 days, uh, myself, Kristen, the entire executive team, as well as worship leaders from all of our campuses are going to be going live at all of our campuses on a road tour, just having nights of worship and prayer and just leaning into what God is doing in our church in this season. And so we we just want you to lean in. Just lean in and just assume, hey, this is a season I don't want to miss out on, and I'm going to buckle up for what God does next in and through our church. And so we are excited for you to join us, and this is week two of our series, Joy to the World. In this series, we're talking about this need, this necessity of joy, that life is full of despair. The world that we live in comes with a lot of hopelessness, and everywhere you look, there seems to be a void of joy. There also seems to be a lot of different opinions about joy, and what we are addressing in this series is the very counterintuitive and countercultural approach to joy that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. That most people come suggesting or promising the outcomes of a philosophy or a program, but Christianity anchors our joy in something radically different. It's not a philosophy, and it's not a program. Joy is a person. The joy has a name, and his name is Jesus, and the closer you get to Jesus, and the more you stay in step and develop a relationship with Jesus, the more you can discover a supernatural joy. What we talked about last week is the moment Jesus shows up on the scene, an announcement goes forward. This is the Christmas story, and angels go to some shepherds, and what do they say? 
I bring to you good news that every single one of us who call ourselves Christians are carriers of this good news that when we explain or express our faith to other people, it is good news that should be upon our lips. This is great news, and they say, and it will cause great joy. That there's a cause and effect to this Jesus, and it will cause great joy for all people. It's an amazing promise. What we talked about last week is, is joy is not something we develop. Joy is something Jesus delivered. It's not something that you and I have to manufacture and force on our own. It's something that we just get to receive from Christ. And the key to receiving begins with believing. And church, I'll say this on the front end, just a key statement as we jump into this. Nothing impacts your future more than your faith. I'm telling you, the most important thing about you, whether you realize it or not, I'm convinced of this. I'd be a terrible pastor if I didn't explain this. The most important thing about you is what do you believe about Jesus? It's the most important thing about every single one of us. There is going to come a moment in all of our lives where we meet our maker. And the number one deciding factor and distinguishing mark upon our lives is what did you make of Jesus? We believe everybody spends forever somewhere. That's a daunting idea. And what we make of Jesus is critical in that process. Nothing impacts your future more than your faith. Another way of saying it is nothing brightens your future more than your faith. There's a delight There's a joy, there's a pleasure, there's a a hope, there's a fulfillment that comes with your faith and anchoring your life to Jesus Christ. And I know that this is, is pretty narrow. In a world that we live in that loves options and we live in a very pluralistic society and culture where we are dabbling in a lot of different belief systems, I am very narrow-minded when it comes to who is God. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. This is what we believe. This is the Christian doctrine. And I would just rather walk a narrow path than a slippery slope. Oh, come on, somebody. (laughs) I would rather walk a narrow path than a slippery slope and just say, hey, this is... This is what I believe. There's a lot of different belief systems, and I know every belief system anchors itself to a paradigm, and your paradigm shapes the way you operate in this life, right? And so atheists have their paradigms, and agnostics have their paradigms, and Christians, we have our paradigms, and your paradigm is going to shape how you approach life. Are you tracking with me? And I would say that... Uh, An atheist paradigm is a prideful paradigm. It it is saying, I believe with my limited faculties, I can erase the need or the reality of God. I've arrived at a place in my mind where in my own intellect, I feel like I have figured out the world and God no longer exists or is even an option. I I think that's a, a prideful paradigm. I would say, this is gonna be a tricky statement, Chew on it for a little bit. But I believe atheism may be humanity's most impressive accomplishment. 
I mean, the ability to ignore a God who is so obvious is pretty impressive. I mean, atheism might be one of humanity's greatest accomplishments, that we see the thumbprint of heaven all over our world and in our lives, yet we can ignore him without effort at times. That is a, a prideful paradigm. And if you live with that paradigm, well, YOLO, you only live once and it doesn't matter anyway, right? You're here today, gone tomorrow, and in the end, it all goes back in the box. So you might as well just live it up and give yourself over to the cares of the world. Well, that's how your paradigm takes shape. If you're agnostic, I would say that is a paralyzed paradigm. An agnostic person says, well, it's, it's not that I don't believe in God, but I also don't believe in God. I, I'm neither or, and, and that really doesn't come with any type of firm paradigm that shapes your life. That would be a, a paralyzed paradigm in my mind. And then there is what we would believe about Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, the individual who accomplished things no one else in human history has ever accomplished. And this, I believe, is a powerful paradigm. I will stand boldly every single week and declare the uniqueness of our God. And Jesus may not be a popular message, but Jesus will forever be a powerful message. And those who anchor their life to this Jesus discover I mean, remarkable, remarkable things in and through their life with Christ, one of them being joy. And so it's recognizing there's a paradigm that I need to anchor my life to. And whether I'm doing it intentionally or accidentally, I already have. So maybe I should assess the things that shape the life I'm living. Peter had a shift in paradigms. Peter is a, an amazing individual in scripture. He's someone who I find a lot of encouragement from. He is very clumsy in his faith. At times he can't get it right. At times he's miscalculated. At times he puts his foot in his mouth. Come on, can I get some other people who can relate to Peter? I mean, he got it wrong at times and he had ups and downs, but he stayed to the course and God remained faithful because faith is a two-way street. In the same way our faith honors God, God honors our faith. And what you find is as Peter stayed to the course, he discovered God doing things in and through his life. And God continued to entrust him with more influence and more purpose. And God began to accomplish his plan in and through his life in ways Peter never saw coming. And eventually, Peter not only got to witness or hear the teachings of Jesus, he not only got to witness the miracles of Jesus, he was also in the space where he got to hear Jesus predict his death and his resurrection. And then Peter was there to see him pull it off. I mean, Peter himself was skeptical. Peter himself had doubts. And then Peter discovered, wait a second, this Jesus is unlike anything we've ever experienced. In fact, this Jesus has now opened my eyes to a new reality. Peter would bump into a resurrected savior, and it's clear in Peter's life, he's realizing life is not what I assumed. And maybe, just maybe, you're, you're new to the Christian faith, or, or maybe you've been hanging around religious spaces, but you've operated with some inaccurate assumptions, and maybe you would bump into a reality that Jesus Christ came inaugurating into the world 
And you would walk away relieved and excited, rejoicing, wait a second, life is not what I assumed. And this is good news. And so on the other side of the resurrection, Peter would become one of the initial leaders within the local church. And he would become one of the first pastors. And he would impart this paradigm as a way of shaping and helping people live out the lives they're living in a very faulty and fallen world. And check out what he says in 1 Peter. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth, which is an awesome concept, into a living hope, not a dead hope, not an archaic hope, not a mythical, legendary, rumor type of a hope, not a restricted hope, not a regional hope. Hey, this isn't just some hope that was found in, in Jerusalem. No, this is a living hope, and now this hope is locally grown. That you don't have to go to Bethlehem, and you don't have to go to Jerusalem. Right here, right now, in central Indiana, you can encounter this living hope that is alive and accomplishing things in and through our lives. This is a living hope, and he goes on to say, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance, which is available to every single one of us, you may not realize it, but today you're gonna discover you are the ultimate trust fund baby. My goodness, you and I are spoiled when it comes to this inheritance that our Heavenly Father has secured and provided for you and I. It says, this inheritance kept in heaven through faith, and you are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, this is amazing stuff. So what you find is Peter is, I mean, he's giving praise to God. And he's praising God and He's saying, hey, we have this, this living hope. And I don't know about you, but have you realized that we live in a time where language is being hijacked and words are being redefined? In fact, some of the words that are original to our community, a community of faith, language that has been a part of the Christian movement for decades and centuries on end, well, now it's being hijacked and now it is being redefined. And this is problematic, and you can see this all throughout our world. And hope is one of those words. We have reduced and diluted this idea of hope within our world. And so now, for most people, hope is simply wishful thinking. But that's not hope. Hope is not some hypothetical wish. Hope is not sending up good vibes. Hope is not some misaligned or just wishful thinking that you and I subscribe to. No, hope is faithful thinking. Wishful thinking operates with the mentality of, hey, what if? But faithful thinking operates with the reality of as if. I live confident of who my God is and I live confident of his promises and what he desires to do in and through my life and I live confident of the finished work of the cross and the empty tomb. I have a living hope. It's not wishful thinking. This is faithful thinking. And so we have all these diluted definitions of what hope is. But a biblical definition of hope is a joyful anticipation 
of good. Hope is a joyful anticipation. Something in you wells up in joy, wells up in delight and pleasure as you anticipate what God seeks to do next in and through your life. It's a joyful anticipation of good, which during this season, this type of thing comes front and center. I don't know about you, but I love, I love the Christmas season. My kids are 13, 11, nine, and four. They're old enough to where they have some competency, but they're young enough to where they still think mom and dad are cool. Like we are in the wonder years. This is such a great season, and Christmas in our house comes with a lot of chaos. It comes with a lot of noise. I mean, the celebration, the enthusiasm, and Chris and I go the extra mile to just ramp it up every single year. I don't know about you guys, but I just love the, the excitement I see in my kids every Christmas. So much so, we have a rule in our house that the kids have to stay downstairs until mom and I are ready on Christmas morning. I don't know how it works in your household, but the L's work for Santa. Santa works for mom and dad, and mom and dad work for Jesus. That is the chain of command in our organizational structure. But we have to get ready. And so we're upstairs, and we're getting the cameras ready. We want to capture every moment, and sometimes we just drag it out to build the suspense (laughs) for our kids. And I don't know what it's like in your house, but in our house, we have some squealers. Kids who just get so excited, they don't only have the words, they just make noise. Come on, right? Like, I just want to come up there and see what there is. And my son, Miles, is nine. And he can hit octaves (laughs) in his squeals and screams that I didn't know existed. And I love it. At the bottom of those stairs, they have no idea what they're going to discover at the top. They have no idea what they're gonna unpack. They have no idea what mom and dad have got them for Christmas. All they know is at the top of those stairs, it's gonna be amazing. All they know is when I get up there, I'm gonna be blown away. It's gonna come with some surprises and things I didn't earn or things I don't deserve, and it's going to be amazing. And so what you hear at the bottom of those stairs That's hope. It's a joyful, it's a joyful anticipation of good. And I believe that is much of what the Christian life is. Hey, it is recognizing that in the ascent of the Christian life, I'm arriving at a place that when I get to that next space that God has for me, it's going to be good. Church, God has good in store for you. God has good in mind for you and is living with a joyful anticipation. So in light of this, Peter goes on to tell us this. He says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for just a little while, a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through refined by, though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now check out this statement. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. In other words, 
You may not see him, but you sense him. Have you found that to be the case? It's like, hey, I can't see him with my eyes, but my goodness, I can sense him in my heart. This is a beautiful reality. The other day we were talking superheroes with our kids and everyone got to pick their superpower. And Presley, who's four, said, I wanna be invisible. And then she followed it up and she said, because I wanna be like Jesus, right? I wanna be invisible. Hey, you don't see him, but you love him. And you may not see him, but you sense him. This is a reality to our faith. It says, even uh, you believe in him and are filled, check out this statement, with an inexpressible and glorious joy. You don't see him, but you love him. And you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Four, check out this statement. You are receiving the end result. Someone say the end result. You are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I mean, Peter is such a good pastor. He is coming to people who are living in a culture and living in a society and a world that is resistant to the faith. He is coming to a group of people who are maybe even discouraged as they try to live out a life for Christ. And they're facing persecution and hardships. They're going through trials of many kind and they are enduring suffering. And he comes to a group of people who know well the inconvenience of life. And he starts talking to them about joy. I think in this passage, Peter actually lays out a pretty good formula for how we should approach God in prayer. He starts out, and before he begins even talking about suffering or trials, he begins praising God. And what does he praise God for? Jesus Christ and the resurrection and the finished work of the cross. And this is a terrible run-on statement, but bear with me. Before you pray to God, about the things you're going through. Give praise to God for the things Jesus went through. I mean, just try this out for size. Before you go to God and you pray about the things you're going through, give praise to God for the things Jesus went through. Right? Because prayer is not us explaining or expressing our demands to Jesus. Prayer is us expressing our dependence. God, I need you, right? So go to God praising him for the things Jesus went through. Okay, God, I just know that you're good and I know that you're faithful and I know that you're for me. I know that you have done such a remarkable thing on behalf of me. I recognize your audacity and your generosity towards humanity. I recognize the leap of faith you took in sending your one and only son to earth to rescue and redeem the world, who was born of a virgin, raised in a remote time of history, who fulfilled all the prophecies and lived a, a perfect life, who articulated and explained and then demonstrated what this life of righteousness actually looks like, and then voluntarily laid down his life and allowed individuals to execute him publicly to humiliate him, and then to bury him, who then descended to hell, snatched the keys that held every single one of us captive, and rose again from the grave three days later, offering eternity and salvation to anyone and everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ. 
give praise for what Jesus went through. Now, in that context, in that conversation, okay, and God also, can you help me deal with my annoying boss? <laughs> it appropriates your prayers. Uh, again, it, it postures your heart. Worship it. It reminds your soul of who your God is, and so you start out and say, hey, wait a second. God, I know you're good, and I know you're faithful, and I know the things Jesus went through for me. What focusing on that does is it opens our eyes to not only did Jesus go through these things, and not only did Jesus accomplish these things, but because I have anchored my life to him, so too it'll be in my life. This is a big idea. So church, I'd say this. Whenever you're stressing, get the blessing. Right, the next time you're just stressed out about life, take a second to just thank God for who he is and what he's done. I think the perplexity of pain trips a lot of us up. And I think this is the issue. It's not that God doesn't know our pain. It's that we don't know God's plan. So a lot of times we come to God in prayer trying to explain our problems. And I think God is thinking, hey, the issue isn't an awareness of your problems. The issue is an awareness of my promise. The issue is not what you're going through. The issue is you don't understand what I'm trying to accomplish in your life. And Peter is saying, hey, this, this resurrection changes the game. It flips our paradigms upside down where we now recognize that the greatest obstacle ever facing humanity has been defeated on behalf of all of us. Suddenly, that shifts the way we approach life. And Peter wants to draw our attention to this idea of the end result. He, he said, because of what Jesus Christ has done, you are now receiving the end result. And what we're gonna do in this message is we're just gonna build a sentence that you're gonna tuck away in your, your faith tool belt that you're gonna lean on. When you get discouraged or you go through trials, this is gonna be a statement of faith rooted in scripture that you're gonna declare over your life. And the first thing about this end result is it is inevitable. It's inevitable. So the first part of this sentence is something is happening. Whether you like to admit it or not, whether you support it or not, something is happening. And church, you, uh, you just look at the arc of human history. I mean, you do your own research. Don't just take my word for it. Go home and do your own research and look at the historical claims and the academic scrutiny that Christianity has stood up under for centuries on end, yet still stands its ground in a way no other major world religion or thought or philosophy can. This is impressive stuff. And what you find is, yes, the people of God have gone through times and in different regions, and we find that it ebbs and flows, but what you find, I mean, it's obvious when you look at the arc of human history. It is trending in his direction. I mean, guys, it, you just look at it. Do your own study. Just step back from the past week that you've had and just look at human history. The movement of God and his redemptive work in the world and everything that he promised and explained and predicted is coming to pass and it is trending in his direction. 
And the redemptive work of God is taking place whether you like to admit it or support it or not. It is inevitable, which is why I always get a kick out of people talking about free will. Yes, you have free will to decide what part you wanna play in God's inevitable will. God is gonna handle his. And God is gonna have his way. You and I just get to determine the part we play. But God's will is gonna come to pass. It is inevitable. In addition to that, it is incorruptible. He says it can't spoil, it can't fade, it it won't perish. That this is good and it's always good. And have you ever noticed that in our world we just have such a good tendency of corrupting a good thing? Not that it's good, and, but it's impressive. We just have this ability to take a good thing and corrupt it. And what scripture is saying is, this end result, what God has accomplished, I mean, it is incorruptible. It's good, and it will forever be good. No one can hijack this. God has secured it on our behalf. Meaning, let's build the sentence a little bit more. Something really good is happening. It's not only inevitable, it is incorruptible. Something is happening and something really good is happening. In addition to that, it is inheritable. This is that whole trust fund idea. Which recently I was reading an article about Warren Buffett and Bill Gates who so nobly decided, these are two of the wealthiest men in the world, that they are not going to pass on their riches to their kids because they just do not trust their children to make wise decisions and they believe that amount of money would just eat them alive. So they have shortchanged their children and they're only given each of them $10 million. (laughs) Can you imagine to be shortchanged and left with $10 million? And we look at that because we obviously recognize the enormity of those numbers. And I think our heavenly father looks at the trust fund of heaven and was like, oh my goodness, Bill and Warren have nothing on what I've secured for my kids. It's inheritable. It's something that the the guarantor and the trustee of heaven got together and they made you and I benefactors of something we didn't earn, we didn't put in the work, we didn't make the wise stewardship decisions, we just became children of a really good father. And we are inheritance, we inherit this incredible promise. So again, let's build this sentence more. Something really good is happening for me. I didn't, I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it, but it's inevitable. It is incorruptible. And in a way that only traces back to a really good father, it is inheritable. And then lastly, what Peter says is, guys, it's inexpressible. I I, I don't even know how to articulate this is what Peter's saying. You will experience such a joy and a delight that you lack the words to really explain it well. Because I think we, we immediately wanna be like, okay, well, how do I get it? Something really good is happening for me. Okay, how do I make sure I receive it? What do I have to do? And Peter's like, well, I can tell you all the things I did wrong to not receive it, yet I'm still a recipient of it. Because something really good is happening for me in spite of me. 
So when you go through life and trials and suffering, it's just standing firm in your faith, recognizing, I don't know what's happening, and maybe right now I can't fully trace the hand of God, but I know all things work together for the good of those who trust him, and in this moment I know something really good is happening for me in spite of me. It's an inexpressible joy. It is, it is hard to understand. It makes me think of the concept of love, a whole other thing that we are messing around with right now. Scripture says God is love. Where we're getting it backwards in our culture is we've reversed the sentence. Scripture says God is love, but it doesn't say love is God. God is the fulfillment of love. He is limitless love, but that's not all there is to him. So don't go serving, worshiping love. God is love, but love is not God. There's, there's a paradigm in there that you gotta pay attention to. Otherwise, you'll get duped and you'll co-sign to the wrong thing. But when we talk about love, it's interesting because I fell into these conversations as well. You start dating somebody and you're asking people in your life who are married, who are in love, right? How did you know you were in love? You ever asked that question or had someone ask that? How do you know? And none of us really know how to answer that. And so my answer to that question has simply become, you'll know when you no longer have to ask the question. It's hard to explain, but you'll know you're in love when you no longer have to ask the question. And there is a part of experiencing something that is hard to articulate it to someone who's never experienced it. Have you bumped into this in your faith? You surrendered your life to Christ. God has begun to do insane things and his goodness is on display and God is changing you from the inside out. Yet the people in your life who don't believe in God have questions and you feel limited in your ability to explain it to them. And here's what I've discovered. You cannot speak butterfly language with caterpillar people. It's just, I wish I had the vocabulary, but there are things about this that are just inexpressible in many ways. And I wish I could fully articulate the grandeur and the splendor of our God, but I just can't. And in this, Peter is drawing our attention to the, the relationship that joy and suffering have in tandem. James, Jesus' little brother, would say something like, hey, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kind. Hebrews, speaking of Jesus, says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. There's this suffering and joy that work hand in hand. Jesus, in John 16, says this, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but, check out this statement, your grief will turn to joy. In some way, there's a refining process that grief becomes the seed of joy in our life. And so he tells us this as an example. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So we can look at that and be like, oh yeah, like every mom finds delight in their child and almost forgets the entire pregnancy, right? It was so worth it. I'd go through it again to hold my child. 
And Jesus says, so with you. In the same way we can all look upon mothers who endure such great, great pain and say with confidence, I would do it again, it was worth it. He's like, so with you. You'll live a life of faith, you'll face some things, but you'll get down the road and be like, I'll do it again because it was worth it. And I close with this. Peter draws our attention to the, the parallels between our faith and this idea of gold and the process of gold and how it has to be refined into a finished product, right? And, and as it's refined, it drives the price and its value. But what I love about it is he says, in the same way gold is praised, right? Like if you buy your wife or a nice gold necklace, friends are gonna see that necklace and say, wow, that's a, that's a beautiful necklace. It's a beautiful necklace. People are gonna give praise to the jewelry. What Peter's saying is over time, our lives become the jewels that adorn God's glory. This is a really big concept, but it's amazing. It's amazing. But what I wanna end with is this idea, this statement, the end result. Church, this is game language. We don't pick up on it. We miss it, but those who would have heard this would have recognized that's game language. It would be like me saying, those who stay to the course will receive the green jacket of their faith. Now, some won't understand that, but every golfer in the room understands what this means. The masters, you receive a green jacket. You are receiving the end result was a game term. And here's the game. Think of coliseums and gladiator-like games. What would happen is, is warriors and wild beasts would be stationed in an arena, and then a prisoner would enter the arena. And that prisoner would have to face the odds. And that prisoner would have to fight to survive. And on a very rare occasion, majority of the times, it was a quick death. I mean, the number of lives lost during these type of games in this hum uh, part of history is, I mean, it's hard to get your mind around. But every so often, on a very rare occasion, someone would step into the arena. And they would slug it out with soldiers and warriors. And they'd have arrows and spears and swords swung at them. They'd have wild beasts attack them. And if they conquered the odds, the king who served as the judge of the game would come down and bestow upon the conqueror a crown, the end result. That's the game language. The king would come down to someone who defied the odds. You've won, you should have died, but somehow you made it. I am bestowing the end result upon your life. And so what would happen is, is the conqueror would make a lap around the arena. Not a look at me, not a boastful, arrogant, but it was a very humble victory lap. We're exhausted and fatigued, unable to express the joy and the thrill that they have in their victory. They would make the lap all so that the crowd could help them express what they lacked the ability to do on their own. I mean, this is amazing. And what he's saying is like, 
there comes a victory in your life that as a single individual, you don't have the ability to express how good it is. It's gonna require a multitude of people celebrating the end result to fully express how great it is. And Peter says, our Savior's so great, you don't even have to step into the arena. You are already receiving the end result of your faith. You get to live in victory and you can reverse your future into your now. Reverse engineer and say, hey, I live in light of the resurrection and if death can't defeat me, nothing can defeat me. If death cannot defeat me, nothing can defeat me. So those who endure the most, I'm convinced, enjoy the most. And I think if you were sitting down for coffee with Peter, Peter would say, the cross Jesus faced has forged a smile across my face. (laughs) He's so good. And you are receiving the end result and the crown of victory upon your life. So walk in that reality. And that comes with an inexpressible joy. An inexpressible joy.